Good morning, church family. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Jeff Herman, as Zach introduced me, and I appreciate you, Zach. Um, I serve over at the Ridgeview campus. I'm an elder, but I think why God keeps me on this earth is because I'm an adult Sunday school teacher also. Cheryl and I joined Blue Valley back in 2008, and actually we joined here. It was before there were campuses, and so we worshiped and attended here at Antioch. When the uh, Fellowship Church became the Ridgeview campus, the Lord moved Cheryl and myself uh, to serve over there. Uh, it was a thing of the heart, and we resisted a little bit, but we, we follow God's leading. I'll share a little bit of that uh, a little bit down the road here in the message. But being here is a bit like a homecoming for me. So I really appreciate being here. I love hearing the music and the talent that's here. And um, it's just kind of a special time for me to be here with you. So thank you. Thank you for humoring me to be here. I don't do this very often. So we are uh, continuing in our series of the book of Exodus. And today we're going to consider chapter 5. Uh, we begin to prepare to turn there. We'll get there in a little bit. We're going to read the entire chapter. Uh, to study Exodus has come to the heart of the message of redemption. We we see God as the Savior of his people. He's caring for them. He's present with them as they journey from Egypt to Canaan, from the house of bondage to the house of promise. Uh, what I love about the Old Testament in particular, what I love about Exodus, is what we learn and what I learn about the nature of God and what I learn about myself in relation to him. When I read Exodus, I see my sin on full display, and I see the glory of God's grace in return. So the study of Exodus is, is, is very special. A uh, little bit of background because we're going to need it to give us some perspective for chapter 5. Up to this point, we've seen the people of Israel uh, increase greatly in Egypt by God's grace. A new ruler came to power, a new pharaoh, and he began oppressing the people because of the size of uh, the community, so to speak. And so he controlled them through a series of forced labor because of their increased strength. Uh, he, he also, uh, this evil pharaoh, commanded his citizenry that any time there was a newborn Hebrew boy that he'd be cast into the Nile River. So God orchestrated this uh, elaborate plan, scheme, plan, whatever you want to call it, which ultimately led to uh, a, a Hebrew boy that was brought into, the, brought into the world, being adopted by Pharaoh's own daughter, and she named him Moses. Only God could create such a reality-based storyline. One day when Moses had grown up, he went on a walkabout, and he saw an Egyptian beating on uh, a Hebrew man. Uh, the, in some translations, it's called his Hebrew brother. Um, and he, in turn, killed the Egyptian, buried him in the sand, and he needed to flee for his own life, and he fled to Midian. Uh, there he met uh, Jethro, and he ended up marrying one of Jethro's daughter named Zipporah. After some time back in Egypt, Moses is still in Midian, a new, another king came to power, and God at that time heard the groaning and saw the affliction of his people and the suffering that was going on, and that led to Moses meeting God in a burning bush of all things. At that meeting, God revealed his will to deliver his people out of Egypt and bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. God directed Moses back in chapter 3 and verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, why Moses? Why did he pick Moses? I think Moses didn't know. Moses didn't understand the paraphrase. I think the way Moses reacted to that was, you want me to do what? 
Do you understand Pharaoh, whom Pharaoh is? Do you understand me and who I am and that I'm a wanted man back there? Really, you want me to go? And then he began to give a series of excuses. Uh, You're talking Pharaoh here. Who am I? I'm not equipped for this. They won't believe me. They won't listen to me. I'm not eloquent enough. I can't think fast enough. Isn't there somebody else that you can send? God answers each objection. He says, I am Yahweh. Tell them who I am. I will be with you. I will give you signs. I will do mighty works. I will give you the words. I will give you Aaron. I will give him the words that speak to the people. The sequence of Moses' interaction with God reminds me of a joke that you may have already heard. It's made its round in the Christian circle, so to speak. A man was walking by the side of a cliff. The ground gave way, and he fell off the side of the cliff. And on the way down, he managed to hang on to at least a strong bush. And he was just hanging there, dangling hundreds of feet off the ground in a very precarious situation. He began to yell out and cry for help and wasn't getting a response and wasn't getting an answer. So he began to cry out to God for help. And he cried out many times, God, please help me. God, please help me. Finally, there was a thunderous voice that was heard overhead. And the voice said, do you believe me? He said, yes, yes, Lord, I believe you. And then the man replied, and then the voice replies, do you trust me? Yes, yes, God, I trust you. I can't hang on much longer. You need to save me. And then the voice said, well, then let go. There was a pregnant pause, and the man looks up and says, is there somebody else up there that I can talk to? (laughs) Well, that's funny, and the reason why that is funny is because we can identify with that. And we identify with our human nature. We identify with how the struggle that sometimes we have with obeying God. To finish my paraphrase summary of to catch us up so that we can get to chapter 5, God has Moses. He's in Midian. God has Moses gather his things in his family, and they head out to Egypt. And on the way in the wilderness, he connects with Aaron, who he said he would give to him. He tells Aaron of his interaction with God, and they go, and they gather the people of Israel. And in the end of chapter 4, verse 31, before we get into chapter 5, the people believed, verse 31. And when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that they had seen their affliction, they bowed their head and they worshiped. Check the block. Victory for the home team. Seems like they're going smooth sailing. Well, that brings us to chapter 5 and the tip of the sword, so to speak, when Moses and Aaron go to meet Pharaoh. And chapter's not a very long one. Uh, so let's read it. I'll read it in its entirety so that we get the full perspective of what's going on. Um, and then we'll come back and circle back and hit the salient points that I think God wants us to see this morning. So Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, uh, since it's long, just... Remain seated, please. Uh, Verse 1, chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they might hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Uh, Where was I? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen 
You shall not longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather the straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they might labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will give you, I will not give you straw, and go get the straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all of your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. Behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its convicting power. Uh, Lord, may it not return to you void today. Uh, may you do your intended work, clear our minds and our hearts to help us not only understand these words, but also, Lord, to apply them to our lives in times when we are in darkness or we are in struggles and there are times that we don't understand, Lord. Give us clarity of thought. Give us courage and conviction. But most of the Lord, may we use it to bring glory back to you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have seen, things did not go well as we ended chapter 5 for Moses and Aaron. Further, the chapter ends in shocking, unresolved conflict. We just hung on chapter 5. We wouldn't know what would happen, but we know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. It seems as though Moses may have been correct in his personal assessment of what the potential outcome would be when God first confronted him, of what God wanted him to do. We instinctively, we know better. What was God up to? We'll come back to that. Based upon the highly positive response that we saw at the end of chapter 4 that he received from the Israelite elders that they observed at the end of chapter 4, I think we could probably safely assume that it was going to be smooth sailing and that Moses and Aaron assumed that, that they had a personal expectation that there would be a positive outcome from the resulting from their meeting from Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron arrive in Pharaoh's presence and tell him, Thus says the Lord, the God, this is in verse 1, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. 
And Pharaoh responds, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Well, Moses was actually making a reasonable request, and I think that's why he repeats it the second time. In my research, I came across a commentary that talked about a manuscript and a limestone tablet that was dating back to the time when they were, when they were pharaohs. And there weren't, just the, there weren't just Israelite slaves. There were other slaves. Egypt was a world power. And Egypt from time to time would let people go, would let slaves go to worship their gods. But he wasn't going to let it do so for the nation of Israel, for these Hebrew people. It was due to the hardness of his heart. Of hardness of his heart. That's a tongue twister. He wanted to keep the economy going. He wasn't about to let a massive number of, of slaves go who essentially were a cheap labor force. He needed to keep the bricks going. He needed to keep the economy going. He needed to keep building going. So he, he wanted that going and he wasn't going to let Israel go. I think the surprise that we found in chapter 5 is not necessarily the Pharaoh's negative response, um, God had told Moses back in chapter 3 and verse 19, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him to do so. So God had told Moses that, and I think that that was an expectation. So there's no surprise there, but I'm surprised by the disappointment in the Hebrew foreman. Um, if you don't know the Lord, you don't know... Uh, and you cannot work out what's he, what he's doing when his plans don't match yours or plans don't match ours. Instead, you'll complain, and that's what we're going to find them doing. Uh, that's what the Israelite overseers do when they find Moses and Aaron. They said to him, the Lord, look on you and judge, because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses himself complains to God, O oh Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you send me? For since I have come to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So we find Moses complaining to God, and we find the Hebrew foreman complaining about Moses. And this was certainly not the outcome which either of them were expecting. Uh, for both Moses and the foreman, their expectations were different than the reality of what God was actually doing. Instead of making things better, it got worse. And I think we can find some understanding and sympathy for them and with them. For I know in my own spiritual journey, there have been times in my life that things have gone terribly wrong and not according to any expectations I've had of what God was going to do with my life and what he wanted to do with my life. Many years ago, I think it was, well, it was at least four decades ago, I think I had been maybe three and a half years into coming to know Jesus Christ for salvation. So I was relatively young in the faith, so to speak. Uh, Cheryl and I were, uh, were attending church, and we had began serving not long after we both came to know the Lord around the same time. Uh, and we began teaching junior church. It was a typical Sunday morning, and then about 7.30 in the morning, we were getting our family ready, getting little kids ready. My son Paul is here somewhere. Um, we are getting him ready and getting the other two kids ready, and uh, the phone rang, and we were in the bedroom, and my wife Cheryl answers the phone. There they are. I bug. Uh, my wife Cheryl answered the phone, uh, and she hands the phone to me and says, Pastor Rick's on the phone for you. And it was back in the day of landlines. Um, what did we do without cell phones back then? 
I think we did quite well, actually. <laughs> kind of long for those days sometimes. But anyway, she, she put the phone down and left the room. And I remember these details vividly. I went and I picked up the phone. I said, hey there, Pastor Rick. And this is what I heard. And these words still reverberate in my mind. I'm taking into consideration. I've only been a Christian for a short period of time. And what I heard was, Jeff, I'm sick. You got to preach today. <laughs> well, as you can imagine, there was a long pause there. And I don't know how long that pause was, but it seemed probably to him like forever. And my mind went into hyperdrive. And I didn't say anything out loud, but my mind thought, and the first thing that I immediately thought was, you want me to do what? And then I began to think, I'm not equipped for this. I'm not good enough for this. I'm not eloquent enough. I can't speak. I can't think fast enough to put together a message. Can't you send somebody else? And as I sat there and my elbows were on my knees, I was on the edge of the bed, stooped over. My hand was over my face and my face was buried in my hands and trying to figure out what I was going to do. And quite frankly, I was kind of nauseated. I really thought I was going to get sick. And uh, as I was there, I began to pray about my predicament. And... God began to answer each and every one of my objections. I'm Yahweh. Tell them who I am. I will be with you. I will do mighty works. I will give you the words. Well, Cheryl walked back into the room, my wife Cheryl, and she asked, what did Pastor Rick want? And I looked up at her, and her eyes got about as big as a pair of doorknobs. Um, apparently, the color hadn't returned to my face yet. And she actually thought somebody had died at church. And I, I told her what was up, and I told her what had happened, and she nonchalantly commented, well, just take the junior church lesson and just adapt it. And I responded with a smart comment. Some of you might not understand this, but I said, well, should I use the flannel graphs for junior church too? <laughs> I'm not proud of that one. Well, I anguished and I thought about it, and after a short period of time, thinking about, okay, Lord, what am I going to do? And finally, I just adapted that and made a message out of that, just like my wife had described to me. So what do we do? What is the prescription? What do we learn from this? What should we do when God isn't making sense, when God's reality is different from what our expectations are? Well, the first thing that we should do is remember his promises. Again, Moses' expectations, as we talked about, were very different from the reality of what God was doing and going to do. Uh, Moses obviously became mired in his circumstances when we look at his commentary and his interaction with God. And indeed, it was not good. And because of that perspective, he completely, either completely forgot or he lost trust in the promises of God that he made before him. Here's a couple of them. In, verse, in chapter 3, verse 8, he said, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And then further on, beginning in verse 19 in chapter 3, he said, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. 
So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. Moses had the promises, but he was looking at his circumstances and he either forgot them or he didn't trust them or it was a combination of both. We're a lot like Moses. The Hebrew leaders also, they were more concerned about relieving their harsh conditions while remaining enslaved than they were about being freed from slavery. We read about them and they were still identifying themselves as Pharaoh's servants, not as servants of the living God. They were God's people who Moses had come to redeem, but Moses wasn't their favorite guy right now, to say the least. We all tend to be a forgetful people. I'm convinced that one of the greatest influences that can contribute to our confidence, confident and thus obedient walk is focusing on God's promises, standing on them, believing them, acting on them. There's treasures for us that we can find in God's promises. Joy comes when we take time to ponder them and revel in them. We're never without Christ, never far from Christ. He is never at a distance. He has said, I will be with you even to the end of the age in Matthew 8, 28, 20. And now we know how, God, how close God can really be because of Jesus Christ. To become a Christian, you believe the promises of God. Like everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 12. We never outgrow our need to live by faith. And living by faith involves standing on the promises of God. Because we can, and we should, and we can bank on them. We begin and end by trusting the promised gift of imputed righteousness and the power of God and his grace to kill sin and impart his righteousness unto us. We have to trust and we have to believe it because we know we are sinners, because we know we have fallen short. One of the most sweeping and most loved promises in all the Bible, Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Perhaps more than any other verse in the Bible, that one verse has helped more people trust God through experiences that seem utterly pointless, painful, and evil. People held fast to the all things and working together and believe the word of God. This too, this terrible thing, this seemingly pointless thing will turn out for my good eventually. Just need to trust God. Let me present to you an illustration of how we can make this work in real life. Suppose God is moving in you and you sense an awakening of desire to move to a new chapter of your life. And he's moving you to join with a band of folks from Blue Valley to move your membership over to the overflow church plant. Or any other work that comes out of the Multiply 2028 campaign and he moves you as such to maybe perhaps be involved in something new. And you see how the Lord's been preparing you. He's given you a sense of restlessness and a longing to venture more for the kingdom of Christ. But then anxieties begin to kick in. I'm excited now, but what do I do when I get over there and I'm discouraged that leaving behind the familiar and the comfortable and it seems like I've got to start all over again? What about leaving so many friends? They're precious to me. I can lean on them. We have fellowship together. What about my teenager who's not excited about going because he or she likes the youth group and is getting a lot out of it? 
It's a hard decision to make. Well, now, if God is leading you toward an overflow church or any other work that we're going on, how do you obey through the Spirit by faith? The answer to that is you put the promises of God over and against every fear that you have. For example, over against the fear of discouragement, you can ponder Psalm 23.3, He restores my soul. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring my soul. And you trust the Lord by His word that when you're soul is discouraged and you find yourself in your situation, he will restore it. He is always there. He will never leave us without help. Over against the fear that you're leaving friends who are precious to you, you can ponder the promise of Jesus in Mark 10, 29 and 30. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake, for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Then you believe that leaving friends for the sake of the kingdom, God will see that you get what you need in this life, a hundredfold, and also in the life to come. Over against the fear that your teenager wants to stay, you ponder with him to him or her, you ponder two promises of God. And one is that Jesus said is more blessed to give than receive. That's Acts 20, 35. You believe that and you pray that your teenager would believe it. And then you encourage him or her to dream a new dream of serving and giving at church rather than mainly receiving from friends. And secondly, you ponder the promise of Jesus in Matthew 4, 19. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You try to help your teenager believe that God may be calling him or her not to lean on the present ministry, but to be involved in building a new one. I can relate to that. As I talked about, Cheryl and I started here, and it was before we had campuses, and I was comfortable. We had a vibrant Sunday school class that God had given me to lead. We had strong fellowship together, both in the classroom and outside the classroom. We leaned on one another. We prayed for one another. It was just a very special time, an enjoyable time in my life. And then I heard that calling that the campus was going to stand up. There was help that was going to be needed. God equipped me, but I really didn't want to go. I was just as soon stay here and continue on. But God kept nagging me and would not let it go. So finally, I start praying and reading his word, and all those promises came to me. And everything that I lost here and going over there, he has restored and then some. As a matter of fact, I would find it a detriment to have to leave my church family over there right now. I enjoy being with you, and I still consider you my church family. We're at one church and two campuses, and I always like coming back, as I said. But God is good. God upholds his end of the promises. We just need to trust him. Well, there's a second thing that we can learn when God isn't making sense and when our expectation doesn't match his reality. The second thing that we need to do is remember his character. Pharaoh's question is 
a crucial question for everyone to answer. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That question of Pharaoh's actually sets the stage for the study going forward from this chapter all the way through chapter 14. God is dealing with Pharaoh. Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? They replied in Matthew 6, 14. Some say John the Baptist, other Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked the crucial question, but who do you say that I am? And of course, there's Peter with his well-known confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Everything in this life and for eternity depends on answering that question correctly. We've learned from chapter 3 and we learned from chapter 5 here that God is God and we know that God is sovereign. We've been taught that from the beginning. And that is a profound truth. It is the beginning and foundation of all our reality, whether we recognize it or not. That God's reality is actually our reality. He's in control of it all. He created it. He holds it together. And he makes things go forward according to his plan, even our next breath. He's in control of it all. One of the other greatest detriments to us is we begin to think that this world is our home. And we live that way. And in living that way, we become so mired and entangled in things that completely take us off the path. This world is not our home. We are just a passing through. All of the promises of God hang on his sovereignty. It's because of the sovereignty of God that we can trust the promises of God. And not only that, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. In other words, Jesus paid the price for every promise for those who trust him. So every promise you hear and believe gives glory to Christ. Because he has fulfilled them. And he empowers us to live in his promises. One of the things that Moses failed to recognize, forgot, whatever, was also God's sovereignty. He saw himself in this situation. Yeah, he forgot that maybe what the promises were. But even in spite of that, we can identify with him. Because he forgot about God's sovereignty. God said what he was going to do. He was going to do what he was going to do, irrespective of how Moses found himself in the situation that he's in. Well, what was God doing? Well, he was delivering his nation. He was making a statement to all the world of who he was, not just the Israelite people. He was also making a statement, going to make a statement to the Egyptians in a big way. But I think he was also beginning to develop Moses as a leader that he intended them to be. And sometimes in our development and in our walk and in our sanctification, God puts us through some difficult and hard things. We just need to learn to endure them. I have come to observe there are two kinds of roller coaster rides. Two times, pardon me, two kinds of roller coaster riders. Back in the day, Decades ago, when I graduated from being a junior church teacher, I was a youth director with my wife. We made a pilgrimage to Worlds of Fun. I drove the bus, had about 20 kids, and everybody want, what everybody wanted to do was ride the roller coaster at first. 
And um, so that's what we did. And of course, they wanted me to write it with them, and I did. Um, uh, sidebar story at the end of the night, when we, when we were getting ready to go and we had closed down the, the park, and we had met the, at the place where we were supposed to meet, and I reached in my pocket, and my keys were gone for the bus. <laughs> there I was stranded with 20 kids, 20 plus kids. Well, God did a miracle, and I figured, okay, well, I probably lost them in the roller coaster. I walked over. There were, I don't know, four or five different trains of cars there. I walked over to one that I just guessed, guessed to the car that I was in, and sure enough, there were the keys right on the floor right there. God is good. <laughs> but in observing them, what I came to see was there were two kinds of roller coaster riders. There were those that would get into the car with fear and trepidation, that they would white-knuckle the, the bar that holds them in, and during the ride, there were two things. They were either quiet and very silent with the look of fear on their face, or they would scream and yell the whole time. The whole time they were thinking that the train was going to come off the track or that they were going to fly out of the car, one of those two things. And then there was a second kind of rider who with excitement and looking forward to the thrill would jump in the car and instead of holding on to the bar when they were riding, they would have their hands in the air because they knew that the track wasn't going to leave the track and they just enjoyed the thrill of things. And instead of screaming, they had a smile on their face and they were probably laughing. Well, I've come to find, and the longer I live and the more that I see, that life with God, life with God is like a roller coaster ride. There are ups and there's downs. Sometimes the path is straight, but it's also filled with curves that can just jerk you around. Just when you think you've settled down and can relax, and you realize that the calm was only at the top of the first hill, and then God drops you off that cliff. Some folks endure this walk and this aspect of life with God as a roller coaster ride, and they do with anxiety and dread, and sometimes when things get bad, even despair. When God doesn't make sense to them, they give up and maybe teeter on giving up on a life of faith. Some learn to enjoy the ride. They realize that there is a destination in all this, and the train is not going to jump the track. There is some pleasure in the ride because they understand that when God doesn't make sense, He's probably on the move, and he's getting things done. And the Lord is bringing his plan to completion, and he's bringing his plan to completion with us in it. When God's reality is different from our expectations, two things. Remember his promises. Remember his character. So that maybe when God doesn't make sense, if we would trust his promises and recognize his sovereignty and recognize who he is, we just might enjoy the ride a little bit longer.